0: On October 27th, I turned 48. Two days later, on Monday, October 29th, the Red Sox won the 2018 World Series for the fourth time this century. My family and I are big Red Sox fans. The next day, on Tuesday, October 30th, Elisa Bloch did extremely well in the race for mayor of Beit Shemesh, which was, at least to me, a wonderful shock and surprise. And eventually, after all the votes were counted, she Won the race. And on that same day, we won braces for my daughter, Yaeli, who's now 12, in a Chinese auction. So far, after turning 48, everything was awesome. And on Wednesday, October 31st, the next day, my son Natanel was hit in the eye with a soccer ball. And that changed everything. My name is Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I have not released a new Orthodox Conundrum in a couple of months. Right, months. And I had said a couple of months ago that I was going to be consistent in releasing them on a regular basis. But I do have a good excuse. I think it's a good excuse. And that's that stupid soccer ball. Let me explain what happened. It was that Wednesday, October 31st. When my 16-year-old son, Natanel, came home in the middle of the day from school. Just because he mentioned that he got hit after playing catch. it wasn't even playing soccer, but he and a friend were playing catch. I think it was monkey in the middle, actually. And soccer ball happened to hit him in the eye when his friend threw it. Not on purpose, just one of those things that happens. And he mentioned casually that he couldn't really see out of his left eye. So, it sounded... A little bit nerve-wracking, except that he wasn't nervous at all, and really, we weren't sure what to do, but I convinced my wife that it's worth taking him to the doctor, but first he went back to school because we couldn't get an appointment for a few hours, and then a few hours later, later on in the afternoon, my wife took him to a local ophthalmologist who told him, did not look like a serious thing, don't worry about it, but just to be safe, you should go to the emergency room where they have better instruments and you can check it out a little more carefully. So, because the ophthalmologist didn't think it was such a big deal, there was no real rush. Eventually, we went to the emergency room. Once it was dark, and we put a couple kids to bed. So, we got to the emergency room in the 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, something like that. Anyway, there's Hadassah Hospital in Ein here in Israel. And I'm sure you can imagine that emergency room is like all emergency rooms. Sometimes it's a long wait. They have a wonderful pediatrics department there. The pediatric emergency room is really amazing. Tremendous bedside manner. They care about the kids. They care about the parents. So they really kept us relaxed, which we were anyway, just because we didn't think anything big was really happening. After a while, they sent us upstairs to the ophthalmology ward or the overnight ophthalmology ward, where we sat on the side in this quiet hallway we were there for hours, It now was after midnight. We were waiting around, almost nobody was there. We were talking, reading a little bit, not much. And then finally the doctor came out and was able to take a look at Natanel's eye. He did some tests, and I have a thing about eyes. I'm really, in general, not very good about medicine, but eyes in particular have always kind of freaked me out. It's not my best quality taking care of eye things. I've got lots of things i got to work on. That's certainly one of them. I'm not good with eyes. So my wife went in with him, and she didn't mind if I stayed outside. In fact, I have to say, any time it comes to any medical thing with my kids, my blood pressure goes higher than it would be anyway. For all concerned, it was better if I stayed outside in the hallway. And they went in, and I just waited, and when they came out, they mentioned that, oh, it was not exactly what we had thought, which was something about the cornea. It was actually something in the retina my wife looked a little more nervous than we had been before that. She mentioned something about a future risk of glaucoma, which isn't great, but that's also not the worst thing in the world. Runs in my family anyway. We already had a risk of glaucoma. To make this long story a little bit shorter, eventually the doctor called us in and asked to speak just with me and my wife. He then told us that there was serious damage to my son's retina. Nathaniel only had 10% of his vision in his left eye, whatever that number means exactly, and an extremely limited field of vision. He said that in the best-case scenario, his eye would always be not great. And when I asked if it would get better, he said it might. And when I asked could it get worse? He said it might. So I asked, can we do something, surgery or something else, if it doesn't get better, or it doesn't get better enough, or Chas gets worse? And he said, no, you can't do anything. There are very few things that are scarier than a doctor saying, you can't do anything. And when it's about your kid, no matter what the consequence, no matter what the circumstance, you don't want to hear that. at that point, I almost fainted. I literally was lying down on the ground. I had to lie down on the floor. They got me a glass of water so that I wouldn't actually pass out. The sound of that idea that my son could be blinded in one eye, it just was such a terrifying thought to me, such an overwhelmingly difficult thing to hear, that I just felt... The blood drained from my face. And when I was lying on the floor, I felt completely sick to my stomach. And luckily, my son wasn't there, but he could kind of see there was commotion. And this is where the fact that I'm not good with eyes came in handy, because we were able to tell him, it's just because I'm so squeamish about eyes. I didn't want to make him more worried. It's just because I'm so squeamish that that's why I collapsed. And that actually gave him a good laugh but it really had nothing to do with being squeamish about eyes. It had to do with hearing that your child was seriously injured in one of his eyes. And it was just a scary, scary moment. I got myself together. Luckily, my wife Eliza was together the whole time, as she always is in cases like this. And we went into the hallway, and the doctor also spoke to Natanel. Whatever it is exactly, the details now a couple of months later are a little bit blurred in terms of all of the exact things that were said. I do remember in that silent hall now, probably about one o'clock in the morning, waiting for the next thing that we we're going to do with the doctor. I know Natal mentioned to me, with some tears in his eyes, that he was scared. And of everything that happened that night, the thing that that haunts me, that so emotionally powerful and laden and painful is hearing your child say that he's scared. When I heard that, it just, it, it it emptied something from inside of me. We thought this was going to be a precautionary visit to the emergency room, and therefore we didn't bring anything except for a book or a Kindle or a safe certainly not clothes or tefillin. We ended up spending the night in the hospital that Wednesday night, now almost Thursday morning. There was a bed for Natano. eliza and I each got a chair. I did not sleep all night long. I couldn't feel anything in my stomach. It was a very, very, very heavy time. The next morning, he had to be up at seven in the morning in order to go to the eye doctor in the clinic downstairs. We were currently upstairs. He had to go to the clinic, the main clinic downstairs. So when Elisa took him to the clinic, I meanwhile went to the shul to catch a minion, had to borrow some tefillin. And in that davening that I had there in Hadassah in Karim, after this fitful night with no sleeping, feeling the entire night like I was on the verge of tears, still feeling that way, feeling this tremendous heaviness, hearing those words that my son was scared echoing in my head. When I said Asher Yatzar, which is the bracha we say every morning and every time after going to the bathroom, which speaks about Hashem creating the human body with wisdom, and if things don't work properly, then we would not be able to stand up before Him. And we thank God for giving us a properly functioning human mechanism, a human body. I said Asher Yatzar with a certain degree of concentration that I had never, ever said before in my life. And that remained true for the rest of davening. I didn't have an exceptionally long davening. I had to get to the clinic, too. But words I'd never even thought about before, it was a Thursday morning, we were saying v'hurachum, which is the long tachanun that is said on Mondays and Thursdays. Some of the words of v'hurachum that normally just rolled off my tongue often said unthinkingly, or even, if I'm thinking about the words, perhaps without so much meaning to me, words that I'd never thought about suddenly were resonating in a brand new way. And that was true throughout davening. And then, as the day went on, I had a natural inclination to do cheshbon HaNefesh, That means a type of internal calculation to see, was I doing everything I should? And I was thinking about the Rambam and Hilchot Taniot, Perak Aleph, Halachot. Aleph to Gimel. I'll read parts of it right now, where the Rambam says Mitzvah Semina Torah Lizaok Ulaharia B'Chato Tzvot A Kol Tzarash Shetavot Al Hatzibur. It's a positive mitzvah from the Torah to cry out and to blow on trumpets for any agony that comes upon the congregation. V'Davarzam Midarkei Atshuvahu, and this is among the ways of repentance. Shebizman Shetavot Tzarah B'Zakua LeHaviariu. That when a bad thing happens and people cry out over it and blow on the trumpets, Yedu Kol should be glalm asayem araim huralehen. Everyone would know that bad things happen because of their bad deeds. Vizehu shigromlehen lasir hatsara mealehen. And crying out is that which will cause the agony to go away. Avalim lo yizakuv lo yariu. Ela yomru devarzabimin hagholam yiralanu. Vitzarazo. But if they don't cry out and they don't blow on trumpets and they instead say, that's just the way things are, this is just a happenstance occurrence. This is cruelty. This will cause them to stay and continue doing their bad deeds. And for me, certainly, as I've said in previous podcasts, the idea, is, The hidden things belong to God is an essential component of my faith, which is that I don't believe we understand why God does things. We can't know if any given thing that happened, perhaps with the benefit of long historical hindsight, but in general, we can't generally know if something is a direct result of a particular sin, we can't know if something's a result of sin at all or if it's something that God wants to happen for some other reason. Lashem Lokenu, the hidden things belong to God. We can't know. We can't know how God runs the world. We don't know why things happen. But the Rambam is saying, at least as I understand him, not that we necessarily have to say that literally a bad thing that happened is a direct result of sin. Instead, we can say that a bad thing that happened is an opportunity for us to do this internal calculation, to cry out to God and become better people. Does that mean there's a direct causal relationship between what we did wrong and the fact that this happened? We have no way of knowing. Perhaps yes, perhaps no. However, the way to make use of this particular event, anything that happens, which is a negative occurrence in our lives, is to turn this negative event into an opportunity to become better people, into an opportunity to enhance our relationship with God. Rav Salvecik, in Cold Fake, says much the same. That while we can't ask why something happens, we can ask what should be our response. And our response must be to turn God's monologue into a dialogue. Regardless of whether God's monologue is something positive or negative, we have to make it a dialogue and respond properly. So I certainly don't want to pretend that I know that Nataniel's eye situation was a message to me. That is not how I understand this. I did, however, see it as a real chance, a real moment of introspection. And for the next two days, Nataniel stayed in the hospital till Friday. For the next two days, I walked around with my chest ready to burst. I cried privately and somewhat embarrassingly also publicly. You know, in retrospect, looking back, to a month earlier, I'm not sure I had such a great Yom Kippur this year. I didn't realize it at the time. But while Yom Kippur was going on, it was a perfectly fine Yom Kippur. I was there with my father in shul. I was there with my kids. It was a perfectly fine Yom Kippur. I didn't realize at the time that it wasn't so intense. But those days in the hospital, Wednesday night, Thursday, honestly, that really felt like Yom Kippur. That was a real Yom Kippur for me. This was my Relium Kipper. You know, I went to my Rav soon afterwards while we were in the heat of this whole situation. And I told him I would do anything for this to be me instead of my son. The story has a reasonably happy ending. First of all, I don't want to pretend that in the scheme of things that this situation is somehow worse than so many others that are out there. I realize that we are very, very lucky. I realize that this situation, even the worst case scenario over here, there are situations far, far more difficult than this one. It doesn't change the fact that when you see your son in pain, scared, for the threat of losing vision in one of his eyes, it's a very, very difficult thing to hear. Ultimately, on Friday morning, they did another test and his vision had improved somewhat. That slight improvement continued for a couple of weeks until it basically stopped And the doctors told us that this is what it is. As we stand now, three months to the day after the accident happened, his left eye is not great. He has a very limited field of vision. And even within the field of vision that he can see, he doesn't see great. His right eye is perfect. And with both eyes open, he frankly doesn't even notice that there's a problem. And on a personal level, he doesn't care. He's totally fine with this. The doctor said that this is what it is, and it's not going to get better with conventional medicine at least. And certainly the worst case scenario didn't take place. Even the medium scenario of it staying exactly the same didn't take place. It improved slightly. At this point, he now wears glasses, not because he needs glasses, but because he has to protect his good eye because that's his only good eye. And he has to protect his bad eye because it's more susceptible to injury. So he wears glasses, but he's back playing football with goggles on. In fact, his team is called the Blind Hawks, named after the Seattle Seahawks, but S-E-E. Get it? Blind Hawks? In a write-up on the website for the football league he's in, they called him the one-eyed, wide-receiving wonder. Ultimately, his vision in that eye, unless there's an unanticipated miracle, will never be particularly good. He can't see well out of that eye. The doctors say that is not going to improve, at least using conventional medicine, we have been sending him to acupuncture also within the hopes that it can get better. His steria, field of vision, is permanently damaged because the scar tissue is currently covering much of the retina. The kicker is this. He was a lot more upset about the fact that he wasn't allowed to go on his tiyul Schnati, his annual trip from school, down to Elat, lot, which he'd been looking forward to, than the fact that he had permanent vision loss in his left eye. That was what really bugged him. He didn't care so much about the vision loss. He cared a lot more about missing his teol, his trip. He has a wonderful attitude. And now we're putting this in the rearview mirror. But for a long time, for a long time, this was completely preoccupying me. It was completely preoccupying my wife. It took over our lives. Once again, I can't emphasize enough. We know how fortunate we are. We know that in the scheme of things, this is not a huge deal. I'm very thankful for the wonderful care we received, to the doctor, to the staff at Hadassah. Certainly thankful to the Rabonu Shololam that in Tamil's eye did get somewhat better when it could have stayed the same or gotten worse. That day I was davening just to get better, not to get worse. I am fully aware that people have tsaris that makes this pale by comparison. So I am not lamenting our fate. We are very, very fortunate. And at the same time, moments like these are an opportunity to focus on what really matters in life. It was my bonus Yom Kippur. And it took me away from the things that I do, like this podcast, and helped me instead to think about the person I am, the kind of husband, father, son, friend, individual that I would like to be. So I am back podcasting again. The Orthodox Conundrum is back on schedule. You now have my full attention. But... I still pray that I don't lose the focus that this incident, at least for a little while, gave me. It's not easy to keep that in our heads. It's not easy to hold on to the real Yom Kippur or our private Yom Kippur. But sometimes we have to. That's sort of the point. And let me sum up with three messages that at least I took out of this, do with them as you like. First of all, never take the wonderful things we have in life for granted. Number two, when something that we do take for granted, perhaps like our vision, is threatened, we need to reach out to Hashem. We need to use this as an opportunity to have a bonus Yom Kippur. And number three, and when that Yom Kippur is over, hopefully we used it right. Hopefully we used it for introspection, for cheshbon hanefesh. But when it's over, try not to lose the benefits we acquired when it was taking place. I still try, every time I say a Sharia have more kavanah than I used to have, which unfortunately had been probably negligible. I still try to look at the words of Ehurachum. It's not as easy anymore. But I still try to look at those words through these new glasses that I acquired, seeing them with personal meaning for me that I wouldn't have noticed before. I still try to maintain the things that I said I was going to improve when doing my cheshbon and nefesh. Again, it's not easy, but I still try. And hopefully, this rambling story In order to explain why the podcast hasn't been going on, can inspire people as well to look at the benefits we have in life, to be thankful for God, and to make sure that when chas v'shalom, God forbid, something unfortunate happens to us, that we make sure it's a dialogue, that we respond, not by asking why, so much as what can I do, what can I do in any given situation to try to make the situation pregnant with meaning rather than empty of meaning. So thank you for listening. From now on, I'd like to conclude the Orthodox Conundrum with a thought on the Parsha of the Week. This week's Parsha is Mishpatim. Even if you're listening after Mishpatim, though, I think the message is relevant. And the conclusion of Parsha Mishpatim describes the awesome moments that surrounded the occasion of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. A spiritual high point is reached when the children of Israel state, Nasev and Yishma, all that God said, we will do and we will listen. This statement is so cherished that the Gemara Masechet Shabbos says that when the children of Israel said, and Ishma, a heavenly voice echoed and said, Who revealed this secret that the Malachai Hasharet use the ministering angels use? Who told my children this secret? And similarly, every individual Israelite was crowned with two crowns, says the Gemara Masechet Shabbos, Taf Pechet. Two crowns, one for Naaseh and one for nishma. Presumably, the double language of Naseh and Yishma, we will do and we will hear, implies that the people were willing not only to do what God demanded, but also to agree to do so before even understanding the logic behind it. This tremendous faith was rewarded with these double crowns. So it's therefore surprising when we notice that in other psukim, other verses, the people don't say Naseh and Yishma, they simply say Naseh, we will do. They don't have this double language. So, for example, in last week's Parsha, Yitro, it says, all that Hashem says we will do, na'aseh. And in our Parsha, four verses earlier, it also says, na'aseh, only we will do without the we will hear. So why does the third verse, the third time mention, the superior idea of na'aseh venishma, whereas the earlier pasukim only mentioned the lesser idea of na'aseh? So Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's Sal suggests that not every person in Israel had reached the same spiritual level. And there were, in fact, varying levels of religious achievement among the people who stood at Har Sinai, Mount Sinai. Accordingly, while the majority of the people said, Na'aseh v'Nishma, there were other individuals who only agreed to Na'aseh. This is apparent from the verses themselves. The first two verses, which said only Na'aseh, clearly mentioned that the word was said by the entire people, whereas the phrase Naseh v'nishma in the third pasuk does not say that it was said by the entire people, which makes it very interesting that Chazal say that everybody in Israel received two crowns. In fact, Chazal emphasized that fact. They say there were 600,000 who received the two crowns, 600,000 being the number of the people of Israel. So if some people said Nasev and Nishma, and others did not, why did everybody get the two crowns? So the answer may well lie in the nature of the giving of the Torah itself. Last week's Parsha describes Israel's camping by Har Sinai with the verb Vayichan, he camped in the singular. Rashi explains there that when the children of Israel approached Mount Sinai, they did so like one man with one heart. Therefore, the singular is used. This, of course, does not mean, as we just said, that every individual had achieved the same spiritual level. Aside from the fact that Naseh versus Naseh and Ishma implies this, it would simply be impossible that every single person were on the exact same level. However, what's more likely is that every member of B'nai Yisrael was determined to achieve whatever he or she could from the moment about to take place at Harsinai. Not everybody was yet capable of attaining the highest levels of religious achievement and devotion, but everybody was steadfast in his or her determination to accomplish everything possible. And God recognized this unity of purpose, even if not the unity of religious level. And that's a fundamental good. It's a foundation of Israel's national idea. Like one man with one heart, the people of Israel embodied a true unity of desire to come close to God. Because they were so unified, the achievements of the greatest were attributed to the whole. In the midst of the overarching unity of Israel, every person received credit for the spiritual achievements of the strongest members of Israel. And that's why everybody, even those who did not say Nasev and was crowned with the crowns of Nasev and And in our own attempts to come close to God, we know that our failures often outnumber our successes. Too often we know that we fall short of what we should be and what we ultimately hope we will be. But by dedicating ourselves to the welfare of Israel, of Am Yisrael, by replicating the unity that was experienced at the foot of Har Sinai, we demonstrate that we are part of something greater than ourselves. And by being part of something greater than ourselves, we can take part In the spiritual grandeur of the whole. Through authentic love, through genuine concern for every member of Am Yisrael, we become an integral part of Israel's greatness. Through authentic love for every Jew, we allow every Jew and ourselves to achieve the highest heights. And through that, through that love and sense of unity, we can fulfill the Pasuk in Yeshayahu Your nation is entirely righteous. They will forever inherit the land. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Kahn on JewishCoffeeHouse.com with the Orthodox Conundrum.